Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Brigitte McQueen-Shu, Executive Director of the Union for Contemporary Art. Originally from Detroit, Brigitte McQueen-Shu earned her journalism degree from St. John's University in New York City. She has worked in advertising, as a pastry chef, and spent 10 years in publishing as a production manager with Teen People magazine. Adopting Omaha as her home in 2006, she opened a commercial gallery, Pulp, which showcased works on paper created by local and international contemporary artists. In 2010, Brigitte became the program manager of The Underground at the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts, before leaving in January 2011 to found the Union for Contemporary Art. Brigitte lives in North Omaha with her husband and daughters. Brigitte, welcome to the show. Hi, Stuart. It is an honor to be here. What was your upbringing like? Well... Let's go back to the beginning. So I um, was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. My father is African-American. His family, originally from Alabama, were sharecroppers. My mother is Chaldean, which is um, essentially a Catholic person from Iraq. Um, And her family um, actually came here in the 30s fleeing religious persecution. From the country. So my parents met randomly. Um, my mother's family owned grocery stores in Detroit. My father was a truck driver who was making deliveries to the grocery store. Eyes locked. They fell in love at a time where Chaldeans and black people were not getting along, definitely were not getting married. So that would have been the late 60s. Um, and then I came along in 1970. Um, I have a younger brother and sister. My parents very quickly moved us from Detroit to the suburbs because they wanted to give us a better life, that whole thing. I think good intentions aside, it created a really interesting childhood for my siblings and I because we were very much so the only people of color in our neighborhood. I was definitely the darkest person. I am not all that dark uh, at my school, at my school, grade school. And so I think that it sort of is a perfect segue to where I am today, even though I never saw the path, because I've been dealing with issues of race and community and belonging from a very, very early age. I feel as if we will during our conversation, perhaps keep reaching back Mm. into this history in Detroit and your upbringing. You live in North Omaha, and you talk about how your parents have this, I think, fairly typical immigrant dream that you you want to move into this idea of what American success looks like. Oh, absolutely. And that meant in this time, the suburbs of Detroit, into a place where you felt like perhaps you didn't look or seem like the other kids around you at that time. Absolutely. We didn't look or seem like anyone that was around us at the time, um, which created some really interesting and super challenging situations for us as, as children. And so it is it is interesting because now as a, an adult and I have two young daughters, for me, I want the absolute opposite for them. I want them to live in a community that is extremely diverse. Um, so they have examples and exposure to people from all over all the time. Um, and so, yeah, it's interesting to see how that has, has shifted, I think, for a lot of people 
where the dream used to be to get away from all the things. And now it's nice to see that the dream is to, to immerse yourself in that and to make sure that your children have those experiences. So not everybody listening will understand that contextual mm-hmm. framing. So I'm, I just want to invite you to describe the neighborhood or, or the community that, that you live in. Uh, so not everybody will understand what North Omaha means. Mm. Okay. So North Omaha is a series of neighborhoods in our city that has traditionally, um, <laughs> through a series of government actions and, and redlining, um, become the neighborhood where the majority of our African-American population in Omaha lives. That is quickly changing. Um, we have a huge refugee population now. Lots of change happening in the neighborhood. But when I moved to Omaha, so I moved to Omaha in 2001 for the first time, because uh, I moved to Omaha twice. Uh, when I moved to Omaha for the first time, I honestly was blown away by the level of segregation that I felt existed in this city. Um, I had grown up in Detroit. I had lived in New York City for 13 years. I came here and I remember plain as day asking a friend, um, where are all the brown people? And being told very matter-of-factly, if you want to see black people, you go to North Omaha. If you want to see Latino people, you go to South Omaha. Don't go to West Omaha because you won't see yourself there. Um, and that downtown was sort of this common fair game mixing ground of things. And that was devastating to me, not because that's the way it was. I definitely had lived in places where there were different neighborhoods comprised of different folks. But I think for me, it was the sort of matter of factness of it, the way that the person talked to me, it just seemed like that's the way it's always been here. And that's the way it's always going to be. And it's not about like cultural identity. It's not about like, you know, it's not Harlem. (laughs) It's not that situation. It's We've sort of been placed in these buckets, and and these are our buckets forever. And I did not do well with that. <laughs> so I um, I ended up leaving and running away to Seattle with a group of Bemis residents that I had befriended um, and stayed in Seattle for a bit and never really intended to come back here, but genuinely missed this community. I missed the people of Omaha and the realization that anything is really possible here. And so I ended up coming back um, and very intentionally moved myself and then my family into North Omaha, into this community, because I didn't want them to have the same experience that I did where they did not see another brown person. They would not see another brown person, which is very much so how I grew up. So there's all these all these elements, all these experiences that are shaping your sense of self. And I'm really getting this strong impression of a value system being not only formed, but put into action in your life. So jumping back again then to some time in in Detroit, at some point you had this experience of going through the educational system, Mm. and then you emerge into sort of teenage years, and at some point you decide it's New York and it's journalism. Mm -hmm. How did you build up to this uh, uh, sense that college was something to do, you wanted to do, and journalism and New York were the places and the subject to study. Okay, it's an odd story. So, um, so went to high school in Michigan, actually went to Our Lady of Mercy, affiliated with the same Mercy that's here in, in Omaha, um, all-girl Catholic school, was literally the first time that I went to school with people of color and felt very much so on the outside of that. As high school, everyone knows it's super clicky. That was not my click. Um, my click was the sort of goth punk girls. 
Um, and the two did not really come together. So after high school, I genuinely did not know what I wanted to do with myself. I enrolled myself at the Center for Creative Arts in Detroit. I thought that I wanted to be a photographer. I quickly learned that that was not what I wanted to do. I sort of languished for maybe a year. Um, there was a whole bunch of drama going on in my family. My parents were divorcing, um, just lots of things. And I oddly found solace in Paul Simon. So <laughs> that summer after high school was the summer that Paul Simon's Rhythm of the Saint album came out. And I loved that album. And so I started to do this weird thing where I would get in my car and I would drive around the country going to Paul Simon concerts so that I could experience that album live because it was bringing me insane joy. And so he, that summer, did a concert in Central Park around that album. And so I put myself in my little Nissan Sentra and I drove from Detroit to New York City. I had never been to New York before, um, was overwhelmed and just in awe of that city and like instantly fell in love. After that concert, I... <laughs> <laughs> literally made a decision. That's where I was going. I went home. I enrolled in schools. I got accepted to several. St. John's was the one that I could afford to go to. And within four months, I had packed up everything I had in a U-Haul truck and left Detroit and moved to New York. I think my first goal was education. I thought that I wanted to be a teacher, quickly realized that that was not what I wanted to do. Um, I'd always loved writing um, and always loved the idea of working for a big fancy magazine. Um, and so journalism felt like the natural fit. Um, so I sort of fell fell into that. Um, graduated from St. John's, worked in advertising just for a minute for this really awesome um, agency, Russick Advertising. I think that they still exist, but their only client was Broadway productions. So I got to see a lot of dance and theater during that year and a half that I was there um, and then sort of landed at Time, Inc., as part of the development team for a new magazine at the time, Teen People, which was like People magazine for itty bitty ones. Describe this experience of growing up in Detroit, some of the suburbs, mm -hmm. these aspirations that families have for mm. their children, but then going to other uh, other places, other schools, and finding that these were amongst your first introductions to people that um, presented as you did to the world. So New York, of course, is one of the global metropolises mm -hmm. of everything, everybody, every type and characteristic. And you spend this time traveling to these Paul Simon concerts, which I feel the need to repeat. Just 
<laughs> just that you travel to all these. I don't places. know if I've ever talked about that publicly or to anyone, like not in an immediate circle of mine. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> that happened. We can explain that later. Okay. And if anybody feels a need to comment on that, they can do so on our Facebook page, which is at Lives Radio Show. Um, but then, so here you are in New York City. So yeah. how did that begin to shape who you are, given given this just breadth of humanity that oh, you're encountering? It was incredible. It was incredible. So that transition was life-altering. It, it really was. In, in Detroit, growing up biracial, um, I never really belonged to a group. And there was always the moment when I would come into a room where you are just very aware of your difference. And so I wasn't really black enough to be black. And so even within my family, my father's mother referred to my siblings and I as the yellow kids with funny hair. And I wasn't Chaldean enough to be Chaldean. I have a very clear memory when I first went to high school. Um, it was a sort of affluent high school um, where everyone sent their girls. And I have this memory of walking down the hallway and there was a group of Chaldean women, uh, girls behind me, because they all sort of, that was the click. And I remember very clearly one of them saying, that's Peggy Abbo's daughter. Can you believe it? She's an Abbo. Um, and just being really aware of my otherness. And so to grow up with that and to have that conversation all the time to sort of be wanting to be a part of a group, but not being able to be a part of a group, moving to New York was incredible because all of a sudden I was just Puerto Rican. Like everywhere I went, people just started speaking Spanish to me and were genu genuinely like confused and maybe sometimes a little angry that I didn't speak Spanish because I obviously was Puerto Rican or Dominican or whatever. And so it wasn't the conversation about, well, what are you? It was this instant, like, I recognize you. And that was not an experience that I had ever had when I was living in Michigan. Um, I think that's also really key to why when I first got to Omaha, I left Omaha, because it was going from this place where I didn't have to think about that part of who I was, that the, that question of, well, what are you, was not a question anyone ever asked me, to like coming to Omaha, where it was very front and center again. And now in hindsight, I realized that I never really dealt with the feelings around that. I just kind of didn't have to deal with it anymore. But moving back here and instantly having people, can I touch your hair? Or what are you? Or you're so pretty, you must be mixed. And, and all of those conversations, they overwhelmed me. They overwhelmed me. And I wanted to leave this place and go to a place where I once again could just be and not have to be something. So this takes me back around to teen people. Mm -hmm. So I will confess that I've I've read several issues of People magazine okay. and enjoyed them thoroughly. Okay. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> obviously I'll edit that. There's no way that's making Obviously. It but you guys can know because I trust you. Mm -hmm. uh, I've never seen Teen People magazine. I've, I've never looked at it. And so all I have is the stereotype in my head, which is not a positive one. Oh, but... I'm sure valid. So I'm I, I'm thinking about all these modern issues of body image and how um, how young people that maybe don't have a voice maybe they do a little bit more now with social media but certainly perhaps in in the early part of this century had less of a voice and so they're not even shaping the narratives about what is cool not cool acceptable unacceptable what is sexy uh, as I'm sure teens are 
flourishing mm-hmm. in, into that sense of sexual identity. And so it seems ironic to me that the really deep values-driven you that is, that is emerging doesn't seem to fit with this idea of working at a publication that perhaps has a very uh, rigid and um, saccharine view of what teenage people should be like. Absolutely. I often refer to my years at teen people as the time that I spent pushing bad music and fashion on the youth of America. Um, and I have, I have paid my dues for that. But, uh, but yeah, I very much so was on the outside of what was happening at this place that I worked. But when you're in New York City and you're young, you are happy to have a job, even if that job is horrifically soul sucking um, and makes you do things that as an adult, you would just be like, I would never, I would never want to do that. So teen people at the time really prided itself that they didn't use models. They used normal, like teenage boys and girls, but those normal teenage boys and girls, giant air quotes, were essentially models. You wouldn't see them just walking around in your high school. Um, and so there was always this sort of back and forth about that, but very much so. So I pretty immediately made a transition from working for the print version of the magazine to working for the um, digital, the online version of the magazine, which sort of afforded me some attempt to be able to remove myself from that because I spent most of my days honestly sitting in a dark room with a bunch of computer geeks uh, <laughs> churning out content um, for the for the website but yeah it it was very interesting for me it it when the magazine folded I was the last person to be working there and they offered me they called me and they said you can come back to New York and we'll put you with a different publication or you can take your severance package and go and I took the severance package and left because I had realized by that point that this was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I didn't really like it. Like I thought that the glitz and glam, like all the things, you're just like, oh, the parties and whatever. And I didn't really want to do any of it. It didn't feel comfortable. It wasn't where I wanted to be. Um, and so luckily I was able to, to have an opportunity to transition away from that. I was living in Omaha at the time. I'd been working remotely for years. So that breakup with journalism with that part of my life was an easy one to make. So you've described, and as we've said, I'm, I'm, I'm loving the sort of collage of and collapse of time and space here. You've mentioned this time that you couldn't see yourself in Omaha, and so you departed with a, a group of artistic friends to mm-hmm. the West Coast, but you <clears throat> couldn't lose this sense of the community and the people of Omaha, and that was enough to entice you to come back. Absolutely. So what was that uh, secret source? What what was that um, you know, magical elixir that, that wouldn't let you go? So I ended up in Omaha because I had a friend who was a friend when I was growing up in Detroit whose parents were um, – her dad worked in insurance and he was transferred here right when we were going into high school. Um, so I had spent some high school summers here in Omaha with her family. And when I was ready to leave New York, I didn't know where I wanted to go. And she was just like, you know, you should come to Omaha. It's inexpensive. You'll know people. You should come. And it really was the first time that I felt like I made real friends, real, like real friends. It was also for me um, – on that path, the first time that I really engaged with the arts. So living in New York City, you would go to the museums because that's the thing you do. You go to the museums, but I wasn't really paying attention. I wasn't really, I don't know, I wasn't really present with it. I think when I moved to Omaha, because all of the people that I met were artists, I got to spend time in studio spaces. I would go to exhibitions. I started to collect 
all of these things became really personal and it was a shift, like almost like an, an audible shift in my world where it was just like, oh, look at all of these things that I, I genuinely love and feel connected to and was curious about. Um, and so when I moved to Seattle, even though I moved to Seattle with artists, the art scene there is drastically different than what it is in our community. It was very saccharine. It was very Coke-fueled. It was not about getting to know people. It was not about the moment. It was a scene in a way that in Omaha, it wasn't a scene. It was a community. And for me, that was the thing that I loved. Again, it, it sort of felt like that in, in Seattle, it was about going to the parties. It was about who you knew and how you knew them. It wasn't about the work. It, it wasn't about the emotion behind while things were being made. And that's what I wanted. And so coming back here just made sense because I wasn't going to find that where I was. I find that fascinating because it will obviously throw us into the future, which which is arts and your involvement mm. in the art scene here. At that time, are you able to give any examples of what this arts ecosystem was like at that time? So you've mentioned, you've described it in terms of it being about the work, being about relationships and about the community. It wasn't about all of the trappings of an art scene. Do you have any memories or examples or maybe some of the pieces that even you collected that oh. that kind of stick out with you because you were collecting these at that time? So the first piece of art that I ever purchased was actually a piece made by local artist Kenny Atkins, who has worked at the Jocelyn, still lives here in Omaha. Um, it was called Easter Dress for Stephanie. And I remember walking into this gallery, this this very tiny gallery um, in the old market, and just falling in love. Like, just needed to be with that piece. Um, but had never bought a piece of art before, knew nothing about purchasing art, knew nothing about nothing. Um, but I still remember that moment so clearly, like everything about it. I remember the sounds in the room. I remember the way that I felt. I remember taking a picture with Kenny by the piece and like being overwhelmed that this was a thing that I got to do. And I still have that piece and I love it dearly. I will always have that, have that piece. So yeah, it, it just, I don't know, there was an accessibility, there was an openness then that I feel is still in place, but it's, I think, shifted as all things shift, but everything just seemed ripe and perfect for me at that moment. It was like, it was the thing that I was looking for that I didn't know that I was looking for. Does that make sense? It's beautifully expressed. Mm. It also suggests to me, though, that at that point, you had to be open to encountering, allowing that experience in to your life. Yep, I think so. I mean, it was it was a pivotal point. I knew that the path that I was on was not my path, even though I thought it was. I had no clue what that path was. I still am not 100% sure that I know what that path is. Um, I just was just ripe. I know that I said that, but that's just the word for it. Like everything just lined up so perfectly at that at that moment for me. Dressing fine, making time. We 
So that sounds magical and delightful. And yet, mm. it wasn't so great that you didn't see something that could be either improved or something that need to be corrected in the potential of the arts ecosystem in this community because you saw opportunities to work at the Bemis in the underground, and I'd certainly like you to talk about that. Mm -hmm. You also saw an opportunity to create a business that was a gallery. Mm -hmm. And then you saw an even bigger opportunity, which was, um, which is the union. Mm -hmm. So maybe just takes on a little journey through, sure. through those. Um, so when Teen People folded, um, I was in a lovely situation where I was had been making New York salary, living in Omaha, um, was offered the severance package, realized that I wanted to make this transition to working in the arts. So I opened uh, Pulp in Benson. And so Pulp was essentially a small handmade stationery, sort of bespoke stationery shop that had this contemporary gallery attached to it where I would show works of contemporary art um, that were focused on paper and wood. And it was lovely. I loved everything about it. I invested my life savings in it. Um, it was my everything. I felt like it was wildly successful. It was fun. It was an amazing adventure. Um, the downside of it is that I had the <laughs> unfortunate timing of opening it right at the dawn of the recession. So everything was lovely when I opened in 2007. By the time we were in the middle of 2008 going into 2009, everything was falling apart in the country economically. Um, and so that also had an impact on my business. I was not selling art and I was not selling cards. The shop was taking care of itself, but it wasn't taking care of me. So in that process, I lost my house and I lost my car and I lost my life savings. I almost went bankrupt. It was a horrible, horrible time. But I learned a lot about failure and I learned a lot about being at the bottom. I learned that when you hit bottom. You can either lie there and give up or you can bounce. And sometimes when you bounce, you bounce higher than where you fell from. And I feel very much so that that is what happened to me. So I ended up having to close pulp in 2000, end of 2009, um, basically because I just had to make a decision between eating and my job and I like to eat. And so um, the shop closed and I basically pitched a job for myself at the Bemis. Um, so the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts uh, downtown, incredible international residency program, wasn't really connected to local community in a lot of ways. And so I pitched the idea of basically taking their basement and turning it into a series of galleries, building on exhibitions that they had had been running down there. Um, and became the manager of the Bemis Underground, flipped it and started doing exhibitions of local artists' work and creating programs that would connect the residents with community. And it was probably six months into my time there that I just really realized that we needed something else, that the conversations that I was having, the work that I was doing, um, it sort of fit with the mission of the Bemis, but it was also just something completely different. And so the union really was born in the basement of the Bemis and me listening to artists and what they needed and why they felt like they couldn't stay in Omaha, realizing that we were at risk of losing our cultural community if we didn't change the tide. Also coming to this realization that Omaha really was where I was going to live. And if I was going to live here, I needed to actively be doing something about the segregation that drove me away from it in the first place. So the union was really born from this desire to um, 
serve and support our local arts community, our local cultural community, but work for social justice and change in a neighborhood that was very important to me, um, using arts as a means to make those two things come together. What was it about this idea that gave you the fortitude and the courage necessary to found a nonprofit based around the arts in a part of the city that historically has been disadvantaged? At a time when we're just emerging, as you say, from this great recession, and you yourself have had personal challenges, this seems like a terrible time. <laughs> oh, but Stuart, it's but, the perfect time. So where did you find the fortitude to say that this, this is something I'm going to go all in on? It. I don't know if I found anything. I, it, I, I genuinely believe that, that everything I am today, everything that I've accomplished, everything that the union is – all is rooted in failure. Because I was at a place where I had already lost everything and realized that I was okay. So if I was going to do this thing that people literally were telling me was just the craziest thing ever, was the worst thing that could happen to me. I'd fail again. Um, I'd go make cookies or do whatever, and it would be okay. I, I didn't have... I didn't have anything to, I didn't really have anything to worry about. I mean, the worst things that could happen to me financially had basically already happened to me. So why not do this? Why have the, why create an opportunity where you look back with regret? And and that's the thing. I've always said that I may not ever be able to retire. I may never have the means to do those things, but I will never be 80 and look back and say, oh my gosh, I wish I had done that thing. Because I'm doing the the thing, so it really was. What was the worst thing that could? <laughs> what was the worst thing that could happen if I tried and failed? But also, what is the best thing that could happen if I tried and it worked? And so, why not try? Well, we shall come to the "what if it worked" part in a second because we are nearly we're ten years on, right? We are eight years old. Eight years old. Mm -hmm. So we're eight years old at the time. What were you trying to achieve? So you've, you you found this organization. W what was the vision at that time? Mm. I think the vision, which is still the vision, I think, today, is to use the arts as a means to connect community and to act as a foundation for difficult conversations, to be a focal point for what connects us and what could bring us together. It sort of levels the playing field, I think, in some ways. So I started the union in 2011. I knew nothing about nothing. I did not. I had only worked for a nonprofit for a handful of months. I had definitely never started a nonprofit. I had not been successful the last time I tried to run a business. Uh, the deck was sort of stacked against me. But I was able to find incredible support in the White's Family Foundation. Uh, Katie White's listened to what I wanted to do, and she's like, let's figure out how to make that happen. So they gave me a grant and were like, let's see what you can do. Um, and so I just started teaching myself how to do all of the things. Found a vacant food bank in North Omaha at 24th and Burdett. A hundred volunteers showed up, I think, including you, um, to help flip that and turn that space into a place where the union could 
could find a home and, and grow. And so I think in a lot of ways, my intention was, what if there was this space that was for artists and was showing really strong examples of contemporary exhibition located in this neighborhood that people literally told me they had never been to, they had never crossed Cumming Street, because someone told them not to, or they saw something on the news that made them feel like it wasn't a community, a neighborhood that they should be in. What if there was something to bring them? Because that was part of the challenge in North Omaha. We don't have, we, it's getting better, but we don't have a lot of gathering spaces. At this time, eight years ago, we didn't have a coffee shop. There weren't really restaurants that you could just go and sit and have a meal. So I would meet people who would be like, well, I've never been to North Omaha. And then I'd have to pause and be like, well, where would you go? I'm not, I don't want you to just drive through my neighborhood. I want you to be able to be here and see the people who live here and hear the stories, understand the history, because it's not just North Omaha's history, it's Omaha's history. But yeah, I was really hoping to use the arts as the pull, as the bridge to connect, because um, we were very disconnected. So I have to ask then the question, just to allow you to give a response to it, why do the arts matter? Oh my goodness, because they are everything. Because they are everything every day. I love meeting people, which happened often when I started the union, who would come to the building and be like, what is this? Why should I care about this? This doesn't have anything to do with me. And I... I just would get so excited because I'm like, oh, here we go. So you got up this morning and you got dressed. That's art. Your car, you've like totally like tricked it out. That's art. Your house, your everything. Everything is art. Everything is art. And looking back at my own experiences with it, like I, my first experiences with the arts weren't in the sacred space of the gallery or the museum because that is a sacred space. My first experiences with art was graffiti in Detroit. The things that I would see like spray painted on the sides of building when I went to New York on the subway cars, like that was, that was my experience with art. And so when you flip that conversation to art is everything all the time, everywhere, it has to matter. It has to matter because it's like deeply ingrained in who we are as humans. It can't not matter. So how are you finding it now you've moved through eight years of mm. this? How are you finding that the the community in North Omaha and then the larger community across the metropolitan area, how is that language, that bridge building transforming 
mm. how people are relating to their community. It's tricky work. It's complicated work. It's it's difficult. So if I unpack that and look at the the relationship that the union has with North Omaha. Um, so we recently, two and a half years ago, moved from our tiny, horrible, but important food bank space into the former Blue Lion building that sits right at the corner of 24th and Lake. And that move brought some challenges for us. Um, my staff is incredibly diverse. The union was founded on inclusivity. And so when we were in the food bank and there were only three of us, no one was really paying attention. And those that, that were, we were prepared for the conversations, for the bit of pushback that we got. When we moved into the Blue Lion, everything amplified that first summer from people in the neighborhood who felt that the building should have been something that would bring economic development and didn't see how the arts could bring economic development to people who were genuinely angry that there were white people in the building, that my staff was as diverse as it was. I had people talking about my husband and my children and telling me that I wasn't black enough to deserve to be in that building. It had huge cultural significance to the neighborhood. And who was I to be there? And it was interesting for me that summer, it took me full circle back to being a kid and being told that I wasn't black enough to be a part of the family. I wasn't black enough to be with that group of girls at high school. Um, it was challenging, but we stand in the face of it and we are not apologetic for the work that we do because it is incredible work. And the people in the community who engage with us, who actually come into the building and don't just stand on the street in anger, um, they are instantly won over by what we do and how we approach it and our commitment, our deep-rooted commitment to this community. It would have been way easier for me to do the work that I'm doing if I was on the other side of town. Being in North Omaha comes with its challenges, but it also comes with great joy. It is an honor to be here. Um, so we work on that relationship and I feel like it is transitioning and getting stronger. We have advocates in the community now and I'm really proud of, of what we do. I think the flip of that, if you look at the Omaha community, greater city, all the yada yada, I feel like it is also doing what I intended it to, to do. People are coming. They come for exhibition. They come for a play. They come to be members of the co-op. They come to be fellows. They come to engage with us. They come to volunteer, to pick up trash on 24th Street with us, to do all the things. And it's beautiful. I think it's it's beautiful. We have a lot of work left to, to do, but we've come a, a long way in eight years. So you've mentioned a, a lot of the conceptual and the, the vision-based, philosophical-based aspects of the union, mm. but I haven't given you an opportunity to talk about all the things. <laughs> and you've touched on some of them just then, but I feel like this is a good opportunity to tell people what are all the things, all the that, things. that happen on a daily basis uh, at the union. So the union is many things. Um, we have an exhibition program. Our exhibition program is dedicated to the memory of Wanda Ewing, who was an incredible force of nature slash artist slash UNO professor um, from Omaha. Um, we have a theater in our building. We do three productions a year focused on the works of contemporary African-American playwrights, um, which is amazing because it allows these productions to be shared with the community, but it also provides employment for Black actors in Omaha, which is huge. We have a youth program. We provide free cultural programming for children who live in North Omaha. We do that pretty much every day in the afternoon and then all day on Saturday. 
Um, we have a residency program. We call it a fellowship because we have an expectation that they work with us. Um, and so we provide studio space for five local artists. They're with us for a year. We give them a ton of support, help them get where they need to be. In exchange for that, they commit to doing community service project that benefits the North Omaha community. So it connects the community with artists and artists with the community. We have an amazing public garden, um, the Abundance Garden Project. We grow food for our neighbors. So we have a program that we're starting this year called Open Harvest. So every Saturday, you will be able to come and get free produce at the union. Um, whatever we don't give away, we give to food banks in the community so that we can sort of help them stock up on what they give out. Um, we also have the co-op studios, which is a set of public communal studio spaces. So we have a fiber art studio, a ceramic studio, a print shop, black and white and colored darkroom, and a graphic design studio in our building. So artists can come and get a membership. If you can't pay for a membership, you can work it off and volunteer. We never turn anyone away from anything. Then you have access to all of this equipment that you need to support your creative practice so you don't have to leave Omaha and go live someplace more expensive in order to have access to those things. Kind of do everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a little bit of a little bit of everything. Through all of our programs, there is always a touch back to North Omaha, back to how the arts can be used for social change how they can make a difference. Um, and I'm actually really excited. We're launching a project this spring in collaboration with an agency out of New York called Designing the We, called Undesign the Red Line. Um, so we are taking a space in our building and basically turning it into what is known as a We Lab. It will be a place where we will have a communal conversation about the impact of redlining in Omaha and how we as residents of the city, um, as stakeholders, can start to undo some of that injustice and turn that conversation. You know love makes the world go round and love baby makes the seesaws go up and down and it makes trees grow tall and the most important thing of all it makes a boy and girl oh say they feel so fine now But it just couldn't see. Yeah, yeah. Everybody needs love. And to watch the twinkling stars above, it makes a boy and girl yeah, say they feel so fine now. I um, remember hearing the political scientist Robert Putnam talk a couple of years ago, and he described. The current state of communal affairs as um, manifesting a shriveled state of we. Mm. And so I'm excited for this initiative that you're talking about. Yeah, I am super excited about this. Um, so we are essentially assembling an advisory committee made up of people from across the city with representation, South Omaha, Jewish community, West Omaha, um, everyone will have a seat at the table. And our hope is that this space will 
encourage people to come and share their stories, um, for us to have the moment of healing that I think that we really as a city need to have before we can start to have an honest conversation about economic development and revitalization in North Omaha. We have to clear the plate. We have to set the stage. And I am hoping that um, this project, this space will create an opportunity for that to happen. And of course, I guess just because it's a round number, it's a centenary, but this year that we're recording this yes. show marks the centenary of the Will Brown lynching in Omaha. And the 50th anniversary of the murder of Vivian Strong. So yes, so huge, huge for our community. So maybe as we think about, um, I've two final thoughts in, and maybe the first is what is the momentous next step when you and I chat in five to 10 years time? What will life look like for you, do you think? Mm, that is such an interesting question. I don't know. I honestly, and it's interesting that you said five years, every five years, I feel like I have this moment of like, rebirth like something something happens that takes me in a much different path and so i can't say i can't say where i will be in five years i can tell you what my hopes are for our community in five years i hope that in five years the conversations that we are having around disparities and inequities in North Omaha is not a conversation to be had anymore. I feel like there are some really incredible movements afoot, um, some things bubbling that will bring true revitalization to the community. And I am excited about all of those things around housing and transportation and economic development, some really exciting things lie ahead for us. And I hope that we are open and able to embrace those things, um, and that we are all participants in bringing them to fruition. So finally, there's, um, on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, there's a section of the show called Not My Job. Yes. Your bio mentioned something, and you talked earlier that, hey, if things fail, you can just make cookies. <laughs> Uh, and so I love the Great British uh, Baking Show. Oh, as do I. And your bio says that you were a pastry chef. I am a pastry chef. Exactly. <laughs> so not your job, because you're the executive director of the Union for Contemporary Art, but your job as a pastry chef. What's new on the scene of pastry chefing? Oh, my goodness. So I will, I have to shameless plug. So last year at the Union during Omaha Gives, which is this incredible 24 hours give all your love to all the nonprofits a thon, um, we did a pie social where in the middle of the day, we had pies that were given to us by celebrity bakers from local restaurants. But I also made an insane amount of pie and it was epically wonderful. And we are doing it again this year. We have a whole pie-themed thing now this year around Omaha Gives. But that is a very real, that is a very real goal for me. I don't know if it will be in five years. It may be 10 years down the line, but I will have a bakery that I think will be very much so rooted in the arts and social change because that is who I am. But that is a life goal. Hashtag life goal. I just want to make pie and cake for people. There is so much joy in that for me. Um, so yeah, if you work at the union or just randomly come by the union, chances are there will be something that I baked sitting on the counter because it, it's not a part of me that sits to the side. It's just who I am and what I do. I love the serendipity of your life goal meeting my life goal. <laughs> I do too. Eating pie is... I, I, and I don't need to wait five years. No. I'm ready. Come to the union and share some pie with us. 
you made the deliberate choice before you came in that you just literally wanted to walk in. You didn't want to have a sense of what this conversation was going to be no. about or where it wanted to go. Is there just in, in a way of closing any way that you'd like to draw us to a conclusion with any, any thoughts, anything that's moving you? Oh, anything that's moving me. I think the things that are moving me right now are honestly this excitement that I have about where we are as a community. And so I think that if I could close with something, I'm just going to ask people to be open to it. And whatever that means for you, if that means going to a neighborhood you've not gone to before, then do that. If that means starting a new hobby or engaging in something or just saying hello to somebody that you wouldn't have said hello to before, then I would ask that you do it. I just feel like something tremendous is coming, something good. And we are definitely owed something good. It has been a challenging series of, of years, but I'm also trying really hard to remember that we, we own the ability to change that. My word for this year, because every year I give myself a word, um, is joy. And, and everything that I am trying to accomplish this year is really focused on giving the joy back. And so, yeah, I guess I would just ask people to maybe join me in that and think of ways that they can make that happen in their own circle. in conversation with Brigitte McQueen-Shoe, Executive Director of the Union for Contemporary Art. Brigitte, thank you for bringing joy to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Such an, such an honor. Thank you. I loved that. I actually feel, I feel good because I'm just having a conversation with you and I love you. So that's good. <laughs> that's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.